You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Hello, church family. Would you please get seated? Uh, one of the special things about being a follower of Christ is, is what this represents in this room as a family. And I, I think a lot about you guys as I'm going through my prayers um, when I've been asked to come up here to lead. And I, I, like, it's just the beauty of us being a family. I mean, it's one of those special things that we, a bond we share, um, that Christ binds us together. And so um, let's please bow our heads together as we honor that, that Father and, and, and look to him this morning. Lord, you are eternal and a promise keeper. You were there when you created the world. You were there when you promised Abraham as many descendants as the stars in the sky. You were there when you led Moses and your people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. You were there when you promised David that one of his descendants would be secured the royal throne forever. You were there when you sent your son to be born a helpless baby. You were there when you sent your son to die on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven. You were there when you promised us that whoever believes in your son will not perish but have everlasting life. And you were there when you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell inside us. You were there when you called us into mission with you, and you are here with us right now in this room as we lift you up in prayer. You're going to be with us when our King Jesus makes his glorious return to gather up all who have believed in him, and you will be there in the new heavens and new earth when we will be perfect relationship with you for eternity. What an amazing story, Father. You are the author over all of it. Let, let us not forget all that you have done. You are a promise keeper. Everything you have promised has come true. You can't be anything else but truth. It is who you are. Let us remember the promises you have given us and live our lives showing we believe in them. Lord, if, Lord I lift up the people of Red Sea this morning to you. Many of them, including me, are trying to live life under their own strength. We think that we can, we can navigate this life on our own. I see us try and try and try, and we ultimately fail. We were not designed to be able to do life on our own. We need you, Father. Each and every day, we need you. With man, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Let the people of Red Sea surrender themselves this morning to you. Let us turn back to you and rely solely on your strength. This is a daily process, Father. Let us continually turn back to you each and every single day. You love us so much, and you so desperately want to take our burdens and carry it for us. This is what you have promised us, that you will carry our burdens and never leave us alone. 
We surrender ourselves to you this morning, Father, and acknowledge your power and strength, not our own. Father, today is Palm Sunday, and this week is Holy Week, and we remember your coming into Jerusalem. We remember your warm reception with palm branches lining the ground for your entry. We remember the smiles and cheers as you rode in. We also remember five days later what that warm reception turned into. We remember the long, pain-struck and walk to Calvary, where you were spat at, cursed at, beaten, bruised, pierced, hung on a cross, and ultimately died. We remember it. We remember it was us that put you on the cross, and it was for us that you died. Thank you, Father. You promised us salvation, and it was through your Son on the cross that you delivered. Thank you, Father, for this gift that we did not earn or deserve. Thank you for this act that teaches us what true grace is. May we learn to extend this grace to others, not because they deserve it, but because it points them back to you, the true grace giver. May we learn to teach others about your promises. And may we live like we truly believe in who you are and in the promises that you have given us. Father, let us be aware of your guidance this week. Let us not shy away from taking opportunities to talk about the gospel with people that desperately need to hear. Open people's hearts this week to receive the good news. You are Lord and King. Red Sea lifts you up and acknowledges your dominion over our lives. And we love you, Father, because you first loved us. We pray these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. We were out at the coast. It was fun. We were out there for a, a conference with our church association. Me and, me and Jamie and Royce and Monica went out there to Seaside. And, uh, and we, we had kind of, kind of been paying attention to the weather, but, but not really. And it wasn't until about halfway through the, the session that night at the uh, Seaside Conference Center when the power went out uh, right in the middle of our conference that we realized, oh yeah, this is bad. Um, because Seaside's kind of used to wind, you know, the Oregon coast. Uh, for them to lose power is a, is a big deal. So emergency generators kicked back on. We were able to finish out our conference, but uh, me and Jamie had to leave that night to get back because uh, she had to be at work the next morning. And uh, so we kind of talked about it and said, do we, do we just go ahead and drive in the storm uh, or do we get up in the wee hours of the morning and drive back? And, and so it was a, a combination of something very urgent that we needed to do, but there was definitely a certain amount of doubt of whether this was a good idea. Should we stay? Should we go? And ultimately, we decided to go. And so as we're walking out of the convention center, there's a big sign that says 26 is closed due to trees had fallen. And I was like, okay, because that was my route to go home. Well, what's the only other way to get to Portland if 26 is closed? Take 30, you know, up along the, the Columbia River. Well, the problem was the worst weather was in Astoria. The worst wind was there at the mouth of the river. And Jamie's like, I don't think we should do it. And I'm like, I'll be fine. We're from the south. We're used to hurricanes. Like, this can't be anything. I normally don't drive in them. Um, so we get in our car, and Seaside is just pitch black. I mean, there is not a light on in the entire city. None of the traffic lights are working. The wind and the rain is just whipping through there. It's awful weather. Glad I was driving my mother-in-law's car. I would hate to be driving my own car. But uh, 
we, we're coming up on a story, and it's not too bad. It's windy, but, but it's just kind of gusts here and there. You can feel it. And you guys know there's a bridge that takes you from kind of the Fort Stevens area up to a story. It's called the Young's Bay Bridge. Then there's the real big one that takes you from Oregon to Washington. There's no way I was going on that thing in a hurricane winds. But, but I was like, we only have one bridge that we have to get across. Uh, and then the rest of the trip, I think, should be pretty smooth. The problem was we got halfway across the Young's, Young Bay Bridge, and there was a wreck at the other end, and traffic bottlenecked, and we got stuck on that bridge for 20 minutes in 85-mile-per-hour winds. And it literally felt like there was a group of people on the sides of our car, just shit on your car, actually, <laughs> just shaking it back and forth. And I have, I have never been so scared in my life. And I don't know if I could have pushed the brake any harder. And all of the cars, I mean, we're watching in front of behind us, and we're all just bouncing back and forth. The bridge is moving. I mean, everything's moving. And in that moment, <laughs> we were praying, obviously. But in that moment, I had probably the, the greatest sense of doubt that I had ever had in my life. I did the wrong thing. You know, like, I should have, go- I should have waited. I should have gone the other way. And my wife was just sitting over there like, I told you so, I told you so. We're just, she's getting plummeted back and forth. Well, the, the traffic cleared up. No one got thrown off the bridge. And just like I said, we got through Astoria, and it was just like driving in the rain the rest of the time. We didn't have any wind problem all the way down 30. We made it back, relieved the babysitters, and Jamie got back to work, uh, the work the next day. So it was, it was a combination of, of faith and doubt. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about what, do you, what happens when you're journeying through life and uh, an unexpected storm comes up. And, and in that moment, you begin to doubt. Uh, did I make the right choice in going this direction? Did I make the right choice in following this path and following God on this, on this journey? Because we all will have those storms pop up at times in our journey with Christ. And for that, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14 verses 22 through 36. So we like to stand here at Red Sea as we read the Bible together. So I want to invite you guys to stand up. The words are on the screen if you don't have it. After we get done uh, reading the scripture, I'm just ask you guys to stay standing. We're going to pray and then we'll continue with our, with our time of teaching. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. I uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking in the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all the sick, all who were sick, and implored him 
that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you once again, just wanting to uh, uh, submit ourselves under the authority of your word. Uh, Father, like I was talking about a minute ago, so many times when, when storms creep up, uh, we, are, we are the first to, to doubt and to be afraid. Uh, and we look in our passage today and we see a storm. Uh, but you tell us not to be afraid. And so, Father, I pray you would just help us in our, in our unbelief, uh, God, when we so desire to follow you and, and life doesn't work out the way that we want. Uh, Father, would you, would you allow us to have such a high view of who you are that no storm can get us off track, that as, as sufferings and trials and persecutions come, uh, the unknown happens that we would continue to press forward in our journey with you, Father. So I would just ask that, that you would open up our hearts to that truth today uh, through your word. And, uh, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys have a seat. I love this story. Um, this is one of those that when me and Royce break out the who preaches what, I'm like, I hope I get this one. Because this one's like a slow pitch from God, you know? Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. One of my favorite things about this story is it's incredibly descriptive right? I mean, you can just picture yourself there. It's like me being on that bridge. You can picture the wind and the waves and the fear of the disciples and, and the unknown, which is a lot of fun. But for those of you who need some visual helps, I, I got a few pictures here that I want to show to you guys. Uh, and these are actually pictures taken, not by me, but taken near the place where Jesus would have started this journey of the disciples. So the first one we're going to put up here is going to be the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so we're, we're not, it's hard to tell exactly where Jesus fed the 5,000. We know it was somewhere outside of, of Bethsaida. Uh, and so somewhere out in the wilderness, they were on the shores and the group of people gather around Jesus and he feeds the 5,000. So this is a, taken in a location similar to that, looking across uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee is seven miles across in its greatest point. Uh, it's about 13 miles wide. Uh, the next picture here, in our, in our narrative, it says that Jesus goes up on a high place. Oh, we'll do a boat next. Um, this would have been a boat about the same size as what the disciples had been in. The design's obviously a little different. Uh, they've found real similar boats wrecked and buried along the shore that it could be dated around Jesus' time, fishermen boats. So we have a really good idea of what they look like. So imagine a boat about this big, uh, holding the, the disciples, the, the 12 disciples, as, a, as the storm comes up. Would have been a rough journey. And then this last one here, uh, we're going to see, this is a Mount Arbel. So this would have been a nearby mountain outside of, of, uh, of the area where Jesus fed the 5,000. So in the story, it says Jesus goes up on a high place to pray. So this is just a couple of visuals to allow you guys to, to get into the story uh, and to see exactly what it's talking about. So here's where we pick up in, our, in the narrative from last week. You guys know that Jesus had gone to a desolate place, most likely to pray. That was the original plan. He had taken the disciples out into the wilderness outside of Bethsaida. And what we see happen in the story is that the crowds find him and many people come to him. And Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Now it was 5,000 men. It was upwards to ten to 20,000 people that came out to the middle of nowhere to meet this, uh, this well-known uh, man, this, this Savior that they had been looking for. Jesus does this miraculous work in feeding all of these people, but then he needs to continue doing what he originally came there to do, which was to pray. That was his intent in going out into the wilderness. So, so what we see in the story here is he decides to dismiss the disciples and dismiss the crowd. 
So let's say the, the feeding of the 5,000 happened in late afternoon. They, they decided to wrap up late afternoon. You, if you think about it, it would have made sense that Jesus would have wanted to dismiss the people before dark, right? You don't want to be out in the wilderness with a bunch of people 2,000 years ago. It just wasn't a really good, good idea. So he would have wanted to dismiss them so that they could get to surrounding areas, such as Bethsaida, to find lodging, to go back to their homes from, from, from where they came. Jesus decides to, at that same time, go ahead and send the disciples on to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum would have been about a six-mile row uh, straight across the, the, the Sea of Galilee from, wh- from where they were. And most likely, as we piece the, the different parts of the Gospels together, the plan was probably put the disciples in the boat, send them to Capernaum. He would then walk along the shoreline over to Capernaum. It's not too far. We'll look at a map in just a little bit that, that shows it. And then he would dismiss the crowds on, on his own. And I think he decided to dismiss the disciples at that time because he also knew that they had a three-hour boat ride ahead of them. He didn't want them at sea at nighttime. He sends them in the boat. And then Jesus spends the next couple of hours until dark dismissing this large group of people, getting them to go back. So now nightfall comes. The disciples are heading across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus decides to go up on a mountain and pray. It just says that he goes up on a Onto a, onto a high place. So when evening came, he was there alone, right? Up on this high place praying. But look what happens in the story. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, right? So they had made quite a bit of journey uh, getting across the Sea of Galilee as nightfall uh, came, which would have made sense. But it was beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Make sense? Okay, so pull up the map here, uh, Nate. So here's, here's what we're going to try to guess exactly what's going on uh, he, here in the story. So Jesus decides to go up on the mountain to pray. Actually, before I do that, I want to I make a, a real quick uh, point of observation. Uh, I think it's interesting that right in the middle of Jesus' thriving ministry it, with lots of people, interacting, seeing amazing things happen, what does he decide to go and do? Pray. Right? He removes himself from all of this activity, all of what we would call success, right? I mean, you just, you just fed tens of thousands of people. And he decides to remove himself all on his own and go up, and to a, up onto a mountain and pray. And this isn't the only time that Jesus does this. As you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are numerous times before or after that Jesus performs something great, he removes himself to go and pray. Uh, as I was uh, uh, reading through the, the ESV uh, Bible here, it's kind of what I use as my, my main sermon help when I prepare my messages, and we offer these out in the lounge, so I would encourage you to pick up a, a, a Bible like this if you don't have one. I came across this amazing little help, and it was on page uh, 1978, and it says, Jesus in prayer in the Gospel of Luke. So another great, another great plug for the ESV study Bible. But they just decided to put this chart in here of some of the times that Jesus prayed according to Luke. And I just wanted to hit a few of those with you guys. Uh, Luke 3.21, Jesus is praying as the heavens are opened up at his baptism, right? So that's pretty cool. In this moment that God affirms Jesus, it says that Jesus is praying. So prayer and then uh, the, the sky opens up before Jesus. How about uh, in Luke 6, 12, Jesus goes to the mountain to pray, and it says he continues all night in prayer before he chooses the 12 disciples. 
That's interesting. Another example of him doing that before he makes this this decision. Luke 9, 28-36. Jesus goes with Peter and James and John up to the mountain to pray. And what happens? He's transfigured in that moment. If you guys remember the story of the transfiguration. How about this? Uh, Luke 22, 17-19. Jesus prays to give thanks to God for the cup and the bread before the Lord's Supper, before He goes to the cross. Then probably one of the most well-known times of Jesus' pray is in uh, Luke twenty two forty one, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He prays. Right? That's just the ones that Luke talk about. There's many more, like our example today in the book of Matthew, where Jesus goes and prays before He does this miracle of going and walking on the water. So what do we do with that? I think it would behoove us not to spend more time in prayer before we make decisions. Because here's the problem with prayer. Many times we come to God after we have failed, right? In prayer. After there's, there's something that didn't work out the way that we thought, there wasn't a plan, that there is a trial. Now those are good times to pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray in those times. But what we see from Jesus is praying before action. And the cool thing about praying before you act is that when you pray and then you act, you act with the full power of God at your disposal. As opposed to when you act on your own, you're doing it inside of your own strengths. Now inside of that, God still works even when we don't pray. Thank God, He's very gracious in that. But why wouldn't we do this more? Why wouldn't we spend more time asking God to fill us? Why wouldn't we spend more time in prayer speaking the gospel to our own hearts before we act? I think one of the real practical ways that we can do this for ourselves, but also for those of you who are parents, how many times do we turn to God in prayer for our kids in their failures or in their sin or in their disobedience when we should turn to God before our kids ever do those things and be constantly lifting up and interceding for our children. I wonder if that's why we see so many challenges and so many failures and sin being so rampant is we don't go before God, right? I've never met anyone in in my life that, especially those of you who are older, that have looked back and said, man, I wish I prayed less. That was just a waste of time. Everybody says, I wish I would have prayed more. So let's take our cues from Jesus and let's do this, okay? So that was my rabbit trail. Back to the story. So in this story, uh, the disciples are out on the boat. This this wind comes along and it begins to bounce them around. Now the the irony is this isn't the first time this has happened to the disciples. Think back to Matthew 8, verse 23. So after the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus calls his first disciples, once again, they're on their way to Capernaum and what happens a great storm arises. Well, this time Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. And remember, he's asleep in the story. And the disciples are fighting the storm and fighting the storm. They're doing it all in their own strength. And then finally, they wake up Jesus because they're afraid they're going to die. And what does Jesus say to them? Oh, you have little faith, right? Same thing. It's the same language as in our passage of Scripture today. Oh, you have little faith. Why do you fear, right? And Jesus rebukes the waves. He rebukes the wind particularly, which I think is interesting. It's the wind that keeps popping up. He rebukes the wind and the seas seas calm down. 
So the disciples had already been in a real similar circumstance as this. Yet they respond exactly the same way. They get out on the water. They're paddling. The storm comes up. The text tells us that the storm is against them. So if they're heading north to Capernaum, it is fighting against them. This is a Google map here that you can look at with a couple of pins. Here's a guess of where the feeding of the 5,000 was up top. You can't quite see it, but that pin is the Bethsaida. They're trying to get to Capernaum. They've got a, a headwind that's at Capernaum, and it's pushing them off course. So the disciples, instead of just riding out the storm, instead of letting it take them wherever it may, which probably wasn't a great idea back, back then, they decide to fight the storm. For one, they want to go to where Jesus sent them, which was Capernaum, but that's where the storm is. And the storm is trying to keep them from their destination of where they're going to. Now, the cool thing about the storm in this text is it, is it the word in the Greek that's used isn't the word they would use in other places to describe a normal storm. The word here is used to describe a supernatural storm. It's the same one that happens in Matthew 8. So the disciples, in describing the storm, Matthew, who was in the boat, chooses a word that describes a supernatural storm. So these guys believe they are fighting against something that is beyond just creation. It's not a normal storm. There is another power at work here that's keeping them from heading to the direction that they are wanting to go. And they're fighting it with all of their might, right? So let's do the math. They get in the boat. Let's say it's a four o'clock in the afternoon when they head out. They need three hours to try to get over to Capernaum before dark. They're paddling and they're paddling. The storm comes up. Now we see in the text that Jesus comes and he walks on the water in the fourth watch of the night. So if you take the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you divide it into four parts with three hours in each part. That means that Jesus comes to them between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's when he actually walks on the water. So it's kind of cool we get all these, these, these details. We can also read in the book of Mark that Mark describes them as being about 25 furlongs out so that means they're about three miles out at this point. So this is kind of the line was kind of the guess here. Let's say they left. They have six miles to get uh, from uh, the Bethsaida over to Capernaum. Now, they said they've gone about three miles. And we know they land here in Gennesaret where, uh, where more people are healed. And so I'm assuming that's about right in the middle. Right? And, and we know from Mark's account of the gospel that it says that of this story that they were in the midst of the sea. So if you look at that point there, then that would make sense. They're trying to get to Capernaum. There's a headwind. They wind up in the middle. They're about three miles in this six-mile span to get across. They're right in the middle of the ocean. The storms, the wind, the waves, they're fighting. They're exhausted. At this point, they've been paddling for nine hours against this storm to try to get just six miles. So what do we see in the text? What happens in this moment is they're, as they're paddling and they're, and they're working they see something, and it scares the mess out of them, right? Think supernaturally here. So wind, waves, storm, the whole deal. Verse 26. But when the disciples, so it says verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. 3 a.m., he comes to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now it would completely make sense that they would think they're seeing a ghost, right? 
I mean, they're fighting a supernatural storm, and whatever this being behind the storm all of a sudden appears to them. And now they are truly terrified. So I understand their line of thinking, why they would think Jesus is a ghost. But Jesus walks up to him and he says, it is I. Now that word I in the Greek is ego, right? It means I am or I exist. It's the same word in the Hebrew that, that uh, God decides to describe himself to Moses. You guys remember the story of the burning bush? Uh, Moses says, okay, if I'm going to go to Pharaoh, who should I tell them you are? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Right? Jesus, God is self-existing, and I am. This is the first time in the, in, the, in the Gospels that Jesus describes himself as God. You know, God has affirmed that in him already, but this is the first time Jesus is a self-describing. He chooses the same word, ego, to describe himself that God does. Now, what is wrapped up in that? Right? As I was thinking through, well, what is, what is the significance of that? To those men in that boat, for Jesus to call himself I am would have brought in their mind all of the names of God from the Old Testament. Now the cool thing is when you read the Old Testament, God has certain names that he chooses to describe himself based off of his revelation and how he works in their lives. But there are also some names that, G, that the people decide to give to God based off of his provision. Now, I want to look at a few of them here. So all of these that we're going to put up on the screen uh, are going to be wrapped up in this title, I Am. I am the self-existing one. But I love these names. These are, the, these are the Hebrew names from the Old Testament for God. And I'm going to struggle through these so you guys work with me. So El Shaddai, it means the Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. Adonai, Lord Master, Yahweh, Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, Jehovah Raha, uh, Ra'ah, the Lord my shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals, Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there, Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Mekol Deshkenem, the Lord who sanctifies you, El Elyon, the, uh, the everlasting God, Elohim, God, Kana is jealous. The, the jealousy that God has over his people is a name for him. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabbat, the Lord of hosts. All of those titles, I mean, those titles represent thousands of years of God walking with his people faithfully throughout the Old Testament narrative. And Jesus says, you know, all of that, that's me. I am. You don't have to be afraid, not only because of the storm, but when you think back on the journey, has God not been there, right? All of you who are Christians who have walked with God, can you look back on the journey and say God was not there? He's there every single step of the way. This is the identity. This is the, the, the way that we should look at God as storms approach. Now, it's a real storm in the narrative, but we can read into it metaphorically. I think that's the point of why it's recorded, is these storms will happen. These, these seasons of fear and doubt will continue to creep in. And in that moment, the only thing that we have to cling to the only place that we find security and hope in the face of fear and danger and oppression and persecution is God is with us. There's nothing that I am going through. There's nothing the disciples went through, that the Jews went through, that God has not sovereignly walked with them in. Now the cool thing is for us today, we possess 
and a, uh, a reality of God that, that the disciples could not fathom, that the Jews of the Old Testament couldn't even have imagined. And it's the reality of the Holy Spirit of God. This is, this is something in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is something that comes upon people and it leaves people. It comes upon Salmon, Sam, uh, um, Sam, or, uh, the big strong guy, Samson. <laughs> it comes upon Samson and he does these miraculous works and he leaves. It comes upon the prophets and they prophesy and it leaves. It comes upon King David, but it leaves. But you know what happens in the New Testament? After Jesus justifies us and pays for our sin and now we're righteous before God, the Spirit of God dwells inside of the people now. We see it first at Pentecost, but then it happens over and over again. We, and, and, and if you look at the, the narrative of God's story, we are at a time in God's plan when we possess the power of God in a way the disciples could have never imagined. We, above any people who have ever existed in time, should have no fear. But why are we so anxious and why do we worry? And why do we lose hope? And why do we isolate? And why do we get angry? Because we forget who is in charge, don't we? All over and over again. But the amazing thing about following God is he knows that and he patiently walks with us in this journey. Faith is slowly built over time. Uh, Russell preached uh, a couple of years back here at Red Sea and he talked about our faith muscle. You guys remember that? Uh, Amy is probably the only one here back then. Um, maybe the Olingers. Uh, but he talked about our faith muscle, and he, 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 uh, he connected faith to a muscle of the body and it needing to be worked out to get stronger and stronger and stronger. That's what we see happening in the story. The disciples' faith is being worked through trial, through storms, through suffering. And we spend so much of our time just trying to avoid the suffering and run away from the trial. We try on our own strength just to get out of it. But maybe God allowed it to happen because he's exercising our faith. I wanted to, to, to briefly look at, look at this. It's just a little progression. It's not going to be up on the screen. But this is just something I noticed in the book of Matthew as I was studying. Look at the progression of the disciples' faith. But it goes hand in hand with, with doubt, right? So the first time we see faith and doubt is in, is in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 4, Jesus says, stop whatever you're doing and follow me. You guys remember he calls James John uh, to, to be his disciples. And what do they do? They drop everything and follow him, right? I mean, faith, right? That's awesome. Right there. Evidence of faith. A short time after that, Matthew 8 Jesus, they're in the boat with Jesus, and the storm is rocking the boat all over the place, and the disciples fear. Look what Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, to the disciples, and look at the disciples' response. They say, what sort of man is this, after he calms the sea? So they left, and they were following him, but then the storm came up, and they're like, I'm not sure about this, this wasn't what I had planned, but he calms the storm, and their response is, what sort of man is this, that he can do that? But look, it continues to grow from there. So then the, the disciples continue to walk with Jesus. We come to our, our passage today in Matthew 14. They fear. Jesus says, oh, you have a little faith. But look how they respond in our passage today. Their response goes from what sort of man is this to truly you are the Son of God, right? Well, then it continues to grow. We get to Matthew 16. Jesus brings the disciples together, and he says, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some of them think you're John the Baptist. Some of them think you're Elijah. It's a lot of doubting. But what does Peter do? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So notice the progression still. We're going to follow you. We're not sure who you are. Truly, you are the Son of God. Oh, no, you're the Savior. 
you're, you're the one that we've been waiting for this whole time. But then they fail again. This is, uh, as the story continues, uh, Matthew 21, they're in Jerusalem. This is between Jesus, uh, this is Jesus on his way to the cross in the, in the Passion Week that we're in right now. Um, you guys remember Jesus curses a fig tree, which is kind of a weird story. Uh, he goes to a fig tree, it doesn't have any figs. He curses a fig tree. It's supposed to be symbolic of him cursing the nation of Israel because of its lack of fruitfulness, right? He curses a fig tree and it dies. And what do the disciples say? How did he do that? How, how could he possibly curse a fig tree? The man walked on water. You were there, right? But they go back into the season. Oh, I'm not sure who this guy is. He just cursed a fig tree. How can that happen? But then Jesus goes to the cross. He does this amazing work of resurrecting from the dead in Matthew 28. We see Jesus come to the disciples. And look what the disciples, it says in the story. They worshipped him. And some of them doubted. Wow, isn't that so telling of us? I mean, you can't read that and not think of our journey with God. This journey of faith and doubt, of of waves of being tossed back and forth. Why is it like that? Because I think God works powerfully in our seasons of doubt. I think he allows storms to come because he knows that we're going to doubt. And in our doubt, he wants to show up in an amazing way. And he wants to help us exercise our faith by letting him provide for us. And I believe that that does lead to a stronger faith. And this isn't only talked about in the, gospel, in a, in the, in the Gospels here. Now, throughout the New Testament, this is a theme that we go back to over and over again. That storms come, trials come, but God is sovereign and he is working. Now, I believe many times that God allows Satan to be the storm. I really do. Uh, when you look in the passage, we see that, that it was the, the wind that caused them to be afraid, right? You, we look and we see Peter. I mean, Peter's a, a perfect example of this, of doubt and faith. Uh, Jesus shows up. He says, I, I am here. You don't have to be afraid. What does Peter do? Man, he, he believes him. And Peter literally, I mean, you, you try to imagine this. He's like, okay, I'm just going to walk in the water. Jesus walks in the water. And he steps out and he's coming to Jesus. So faith, right? But then what happens right in the midst of it? Do you remember what it is that causes him to doubt? It's the wind, right? It's the wind being blown along. Do you remember what caused the disciples to doubt in Matthew 8? It's the wind. What is the title for Satan in Ephesians 2.2? The prince of the power of the air, right? I, th- I, think, I think God allows Satan to run amok in our lives because he wants to come in and rescue us. And there's a day when that will no longer happen. You know, G- Satan is ultimately one. That's the good news of the cross. We live in this time where, where sin's been defeated. Satan's lost. He knows it. The only power Satan has over us is that power which we choose to give him. But he hasn't been vanquished yet. We're in a time now in God's plan where, where Satan is actively at work bringing storms upon the people of God and upon the world to, to bring doubt into anyone's life. And in that moment of doubt, if we would only turn to God, he will show up for us. We see this here. James talks about this. Uh, I want to look at James um, chapter 1, verses 5 here. 
Look what James says. If you're, in a, if you're in a season of doubt, what should you do? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Wow. You know the, the cool thing about that? Where do you think he got that visual from? He was in the boat, right? James was there. He saw this whole thing. He watched Peter walk on the water. He watched Peter doubt and lose his faith. And then James later, when he's recording his book, says, if any of you asked of God, you should ask with faith and not doubting. Fears the doubt. I, I realize the storm's going to come and we're going to be afraid. But in that moment, what we do says so much about how real God is to us and where we find our source of strength. We should continue to go to God and and ask. Now, James, we know here, is is talking about trials that happen in our life. We can read just before this in James 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Right now, for those of you who are Christians, you are being made perfect through trials and sufferings and persecutions. You are being made perfect through these storms that are coming along in your life. He's not the only person that says this. How about Peter? We look at 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Peter says, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know you can't see now the purpose of the storm. I know it's hard to understand why Life has happened in the way that it has that has led you up to this moment where you are right now in this journey with God. But Peter tells us to rejoice because all of these various trials are a testing of our faith that will later show glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was in the boat, right? I mean, these guys are talking out of their experience of having to go through this. And that brings me so much encouragement. How about one more? This guy wasn't in the boat. This is Paul. He hasn't come along until a little while later here. A Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let's just stop right there. Paul's making the point that we rejoice in the fact that God has made us as a, a part of his family. We've been justified. We've been brought into the family of God. We've been forgiven of all the sin that's in our lives, right? We should rejoice in that truth that there was a big conflict. It was between you and God, and God made that right. And because of that, he goes on to say, not only that, that's pretty awesome, but look now in verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts like a, a big 
55 gallon of Jesus' love just getting dumped on you, right? It's just been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the progression that Paul walks through there is suffering, right? Storm, trial, persecution. That should lead to endurance, that should lead to character, that should lead to hope. But unfortunately, what we see many times, and what I see in my brothers and sisters, is suffering that leads to isolation, that leads to worry, that leads to fear and hopelessness. How you respond to the suffering makes all the difference in the end result of God being glorified and your faith being strengthened. So what you can do, Christian, if you are journeying with God, and you are being obedient to whatever he has called you to do. And, I, and, I, and I, you know, I don't know where all you guys are on your journey. I, I, know, I know quite a few of you are. But if you're being obedient to God and you are struggling, and, and it doesn't matter if it's your difficult marriage, it doesn't matter if it's your difficult job, or if it's your difficult finances, or a family relationship, or a, a conflict with someone inside of this church. If you are being obedient to walk forward with God in this thing, you are doing it with the full power of Yahweh. This God who has been ever existent, who has proven himself time and time again, is walking with us in this journey. So I want to implore you guys to step forward in obedience. And, and like I said, I don't know where you're at in the journey. Maybe you're just in the boat and you're just freaking out, right? Right? You're just, you're just trying to not get thrown out of the boat. In that moment, repent of fear and cling to the reality that Jesus Christ is there with you, right? Maybe some of you have had these Peter moments where you believed and you stepped out in faith and you started walking and then the wind came and the evil one came and robbed you of that joy. In the midst of that, you cry out to God, and he says, I am here. You have no one to fear. Let us together continue to, to walk forward in faithfulness. Because as you walk forward, what do you see happen in the story? The winds cease, and God is glorified, right? It says they worship him. And through the storm, through the doubt, they have a whole new revelation of who God is. Truly, you are the Son of God. That is something that can only be learned in trial and in testing. It's God's plan. It's God's design. It's evidenced over and over again. You can't read the Bible and think this is an easy journey. It is fraught with difficulty after difficulty because God uses those trials to shape us into the person that he is creating us to be for his glory. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Christian and the band to head back up here. And I want you to just stop and take a minute and think about whatever the storm is in your life, whatever that trial is. It can be different for, for different people. But I want, you to, I want you to picture it in your head. And then I want you to take that thing and I want you to bring it with you to these communion tables when we come. And as you dip the, the bread into the wine... Remember the love of Jesus for you. Remember that Romans 5 passage that you, were, that you were bought with a price, that you were purchased. You were justified. 
But not only that, you now walk on this journey with Yahweh, with God throughout everything you will go to. And all you have to do is what James said. If anybody lacks wisdom, if you're suffering, ask and ask in faith and then let God blow your mind away. Because the storm stops and they get to where they were going and inevitably they wind up someplace different. And another amazing miracle happens. People come out and all they have to do is touch the robe of Jesus and they're healed after the storm passes. It's cool to think about what God could do if we would only be faithful, if we would only not give up on the journey and do the work that God has placed us here to do. So let's continue to do that now. Let's come and take communion. Let's repent of fear and worry and doubt. Let's repent of that thing that's holding us back from journeying with God. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be in the back of the room. I'd love to to pray with you and help you walk that journey uh, with you. Come and take communion. Uh, Let's worship our God together. Let's take a, a, let's let's just start out confessionally, right? Let's just start out singing the songs of our King and then let it grow into fruit in our life and let us be strengthened and nourished in our faith as we walk with the Lord. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, you are so good. Uh, God, I, I can't think, I can't think of a time in my journey with you when you haven't been there, Father. When the, the storms came, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if there'd be enough money or we didn't know if we would have anybody to help us. And God, you were there every step of the way. Your people, we should be the most secure people. So Father, we come before you and we repent of the lies from the wind that get whispered into our ears that you're not there and you're not good enough. And there's something out there that we can turn to that will please us outside of you. Or that we can do it on our own strength. And we come before you and we humble ourselves. And we remember all over again that your grace has been poured out on, th- on us through Jesus Christ. And then we're emboldened once again to continue to press forward, God. Will we not stop pressing forward? With the sufferings that we now have, would they lead to endurance? Would that endurance lead to faith and that faith lead to hope in you and in your plan and in your, your goodness in our lives? And may you be glorified throughout this beautiful mess of faith and doubt that we walk in with you, Father. I'd ask you that you would do that, Father, today in this place in our hearts. And we can ask that in the name of Jesus because of what he did. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.